God's word that we're going to spend some time considering this morning is that lesson from Hebrews chapter 5. I encourage you to open that up in your own Bibles and uh, follow along as we take a look at God's word together. Why don't we pray this morning? Lord, I want to especially pray and thank you for bringing those here who, who don't get a chance to often hear your word. Uh, whether they are here with us in person or they're, they're watching it later, thanks for letting them have this opportunity to know you and to hear from you. And I pray that I, your servant, would not stand in the way of your people hearing that, but rather that it would come through clearly to them. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about halfway through the pandemic, one of my friends that I work with on some projects, not a good friend, but uh, just a, a friend, switched jobs. When I asked him why he switched jobs, he said, well, there's some good opportunities here, future, you know, future opportunities. There's uh, ways for me to use my skills that I didn't get to use before. The interesting part of his answer was, I'm tired of being alone. His organization was going through a lot of changes and he had to work now on his own most of the time. He no longer got to work as part of a team. And he was just, he, it was completely unmotivating. He was tired of working alone. He was tired of feeling alone. He was motivated working with other people. He was not motivated sitting by himself for six, seven, eight hours a day. He wanted to stop working alone. And I, I don't think I'm breaking any confidence saying this to you. It was kind of a public thing as he shifted jobs. It was like holding up a mirror, though, for me, because I don't like being alone. I hate working uh, alone. When I have to sit in the, the, the building for six, seven, eight hours a day by myself, it drives me crazy. They're probably the most unproductive days of my week. I thought as an adult and as a pastor, I was going to always be with people. And then I was, whew, I feel alone so much in life. I feel alone, especially when things aren't going well. I feel alone when there's not much success in my work. I especially feel alone when I'm experiencing conflict with the people close to me. And so it really struck me one time when I was reading some words from Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish man uh, who lived through the Second World War. He was captured by the Germans. He, he survived one of uh, a couple of the concentration camps. And when I say he survived, he really did survive. He became the founder of a kind of mental therapy during uh, the 20th century, a pretty popular one. He gained a lot of insight from that experience in the camp about human nature. And one of the ex insights that he shared was that most of the people who died inside the camp died on the inside first. They died from emptiness and desolation and spiritual nothingness, he said, or spiritual poverty. Uh, he said that the, the hardest part of the camp was not the physical problems, but it was the empty spiritual problems. People just gave up living. Uh, and, and so, for example, one of the things that got people through was renewing their inner life. Renewing a kind of inner life was what really got people through that difficult, incredibly hard time. I think a lot harder than a pandemic, huh? Um, and so, for example, he had an experience like this, that one day we were out at work at the trench, he said, and the, the dawn was gray, gray was everywhere, gray was the sky above, gray the snow and the pale light, gray were the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and gray their faces. 
But I, I was conversing silently with my wife. His wife wasn't there, but he was conversing with her in his soul. Perhaps I was even struggling to find the reasons for my sufferings. For hours I stood hacking at the icy ground. The guard passed by, insulting me. But once again, I communed with my beloved. More and more I felt that she was present, that she was with me. I had this feeling that I was able to touch her, able to stretch out my hand and grasp hers. The feeling was very strong. She was there. What was part of the reason that Frankel survived the horrors of the concentration camp? She was there. He was not alone. And he felt it. He knew it. The writer to the Hebrews today says we have something so much more. He says we have somebody better than your wife and an experience better than your spouse who is there. And and I think this is a partial answer to one of the most difficult questions that I get. You know, so many people, um, the hardest question of why to believe in God is not, is there enough evidence for God? Or it's not cool, it's just not popular to believe in God. It's, it does God care when there are problems? Because there certainly seems to be a lot of problems and a lot of suffering, and God just doesn't seem to care. And today's lesson is an answer. It's an answer for that. God starts out this way. He says this. Uh, he says through the writer to the Hebrews, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. And so on. I want you to see this Jesus. Look at this Jesus. This isn't the Jesus who challenged Nicodemus. This isn't the Jesus who cleaned out the temple. This is not a powerful Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Look at these words. This is a Jesus who cries out. Right? This is a Jesus who just physically cries. This is a Jesus who submits. This Jesus suffers. Generally speaking, people list two reasons or two causes for suffering in life. The one is physical circumstances, and the other is uh, your individual personality and, and your character. Right? So physical circumstances, you can see there's a hint towards that in these words. He cried to the one who could save him from death. Why was Jesus suffering? He was experiencing terrible physical circumstances. And we tend to think the same way. Um, if I come across a group of people that's all dressed in black and some people are crying, I don't think to myself, well, this must be a strange new kind of people. You know, they're not Germans, they're not Americans, they're not Japanese. These are black wearers. I don't think to myself, they're some kind of weird ethnicity. I think, oh, they're all at a funeral, right? That, that's just, we think external circumstances are the causes for people suffering. The other cause that people give for suffering is your personality and your, your character, right? And you can see the hint in these verses for that as well. Fervent cries, right? Why was Jesus suffering so deeply, so greatly? Because he was a passionate person. He was a person with a big heart. Fervent means that his heart was on fire. That's why he suffered so greatly. And we do the same thing. Uh, don't worry, be happy, people tell us. 
right? Your personality, your character is causing you to, to freak out about this situation. Uh, we tell people, you know, they're just dogs if your dog dies because, well, don't make such a big deal out of it, right? Your personality is making a bigger a mountain out of a molehill, a bigger bit out of the problem than it actually is. But, you know, you think, you look at Jesus and you think, if ever there was a person whose personality and his character didn't cause him to suffer, it would be Jesus, huh? I don't care if you believe in Jesus or not. Everyone agrees Jesus was a good guy. He was the best guy. He had no moral or character issues at all. And so there's no reason at all for Jesus to suffer because of his personality and his character. You know, nobody ever says to him, Jesus, don't make a mountain out of a molehill because he was just not wrong in that way. And, and there was no reason for him to suffer because of external circumstances or his physical circumstances. Sure, sure, he was, he was going to die, but I mean, he should have been angry, right? He should have been furious. He shouldn't have cried. He shouldn't have had pain in his soul. There was no need for him to have cries and tears. He should have been furious because he was innocent. He was not to blame for anything that he was experiencing. Jesus shows us, this is what I mean, right? Is that certainly physical circumstances play a part or a role in what you and I suffer. And, and so does your personality and your character. But if that's the only thing you have for an answer, that's not enough of an answer. You need to see something else, right? I mean, there's got to be something more. He cried to the one who could save him from death. Why the word save? Why the word save from death, huh? I mean, it's almost as if there was some kind of physical force or supernatural force forcing Jesus, this amazing guy, this perfect guy, to have to die. It, I mean, it's as if there's a supernatural power just compelling him and he needs to get rescued and pulled back even from that supernatural force. There's something at work here pushing on Jesus so that he suffers even though there's nothing wrong with him. There's no reason for that supernatural force to have any power over him. Right? See, suffering is not just because of physical circumstances. It's not just because of your personality. It's because of sin. There's a supernatural force out there. Whether you are a good person or not, whether you have an easy life or a hard life that rips at you and pushes at you and pushes at me and pushes at all of us, to cause us pain in our souls. And, and I, I suspect most of you say, well, of course, right. Suffering is an expression of sin. Yeah, no big deal there, Pastor, right? I agree with you there. But, but I bet there's a few of you out there who would say, now, wait a second. Wait a second here. You're telling me that there's a supernatural force out there that causes pain and, and suffering in life. And I, I have to say, you know, most of the people I know in life are pretty good they're pretty good people, and most of the systems that I experience in life, they're, you know, there's certainly problems in them, but they're generally pretty good. Are you really sure you can say that there's, there's this supernatural force out there that causes suffering, right? I mean, most of the people I know are pretty good. How can there be this force that causes such pain in our lives if everybody is such a good person. More or less, right? I mean, 
How many of you know really evil, awful, terrible people? Honestly, not really, right? I mean, maybe one, maybe two, but the vast majority of people I know are not really, really evil, awful, terrible people. Where's this supernatural force? Where's this spiritual force? And if we say that, okay, we're certainly not the first people to say that. I've told you the story before of of a man named Langdon Gilkey. Langdon Gilkey was another guy who was stuck in a prison camp during World War II. He was put into a Japanese camp in China. And Langdon was very convinced that people are basically good. Uh, so there's, you know, right, there's no need for suffering, there's no need for pain, there's no need for all the problems in life. If everybody just chips in, we'll all be fine. And, and he, said, he said this, it's, he had a really interesting experience in this camp, right? He's put into a camp that's about the size of our soccer field outside with 2,000 other people for a couple of years. He found out pretty quickly whether or not people were basically good. He said, nothing indicates so clearly the fixed belief in the innate goodness of humans as does this confidence that when the chips are down and we're revealed for what we really are, we'll all be good to each other. Nothing could be so totally in error. He had this terrible experience in the camp because generally speaking, people were awful and they would treat each other terribly. For example, one time... One time there were nine people living in, in a room and there were 11 people living in another room and he made the argument that said, hey, these rooms are both the same size. You know, we'd all be happier all around if the people in the, the nine-person room would give up some space so that the, the, the 11th person could move into that room and we'd have two rooms with 10 people in it. And he was shocked by how atrociously everybody behaved to defend their rights and their reasons why the nine-person room should stay a nine-person room. He said, nobody is really that good in the end. There is definitely some spiritual force that is at work to wreck our lives and to cause us to be bad, evil, and to have to suffer because of it. See, I understand that you and I want to say that people are generally pretty good and that the, the system is generally pretty good. And I certainly don't want to walk around saying that people are are generally pretty bad, but the goodest person of them all, and yes, I just made up that word, so you can go home and say that, the goodest person of them all suffered terrible things, the very worst stuff. And he suffered it so that you and I could say without a shadow of a doubt that no matter what we are suffering through, that he, the God of the universe, wants to suffer with us. It says in these words that Jesus was made perfect, right? Once made perfect. That means a lot of things. That does not mean that there was something wrong with Jesus. It means that the perfect place for Jesus to be was to be suffering with you and me. That's where he belonged. There was no place else in the world where he would ever be. And you know what that looks like in our lives? It looks like, like this. So I, like a lot of people, have offended individuals in my life. Uh, and one time I offended a gentleman, older gentleman. I have no idea uh, what I did wrong. I still don't really quite know it to this day. Right, it was one of those cases where I called the guy and I tried to square things out. And I even went and visited him at his house. And, and we just couldn't get things straightened out. And so eventually I had to ask another older gentleman to assist me in straightening out this, re- this situation with this guy. And so 
Uh, you know, he did that. He put his reputation on the line and he asked the other gentleman to sit down with me at a table. I apologized. And this, the, the key factor was that this other gentleman assured the, the man I offended that my repentance was real. He assured this other guy that my, forget, my apology was genuine. And I've never really thought about it, but I, I, you know, I was thinking about all of the embarrassment that he had to experience. Here I was as a, as a pastor having to apologize to this other guy and how embarrassing that must have been for this well-respected man to put his name and his reputation on the line for me. Right? He experienced shame because of my sin. He experienced guilt and blame because he was associated with me. That must have been a, a, a terrible experience for him. And Jesus has said, you know, there is no shame, there is no embarrassment, there is no guilt, there is no blame, there is no pain, there is no agony that you would go through that I will stay away from. Jesus has said, I want to be with you and I will represent you to the God of the universe so that he knows your forgiveness is real and you want nothing more in the whole world than to be loved and to accept it by God. Christians can proclaim clearly that God can be trusted when we suffer for exactly this reason. Right? The main reason that Christians insist God can be trusted in the middle of our suffering is that God himself suffered. And nothing, nothing can change your sufferings more than the tears of this man who suffered for you. He's the perfect partner in all of your pain and your problems. Now, what does this look like, right? You've got the perfect partner in all of your pain and your problems. What does this look like? Well, the next verse tells us. It says that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him, and he was designated by God to be high priest. That's what the next verse says. Now, what does that look like? He's designated by God to be a high priest. What's a high priest do? A high priest is somebody who is with you and advocates with you to get you what you need, okay? Which means he's not a friend, he's not an acquaintance, he's your partner. Not a friend, he's not an acquaintance, he's your partner. See, when your best friend or your spouse comes home at the end of the day, do you make your best friend or your spouse ask you, so what, what do you feel guilty about today? What's the embarrassing thing that you did today? What, 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 how did you mess up today? What, what did you take the blame for today? You know, you don't make your best friend ask those kinds of, of things. Your best friend walks in the door, your spouse walks in the door, and you say, oh man, I feel so guilty. I messed up big time at work today. Right? Your, your, your spouse walks through the door and you say, I'm, I'm feeling really embarrassed today because, man, I, I just did not fit in when we, we had this conversation and I was feeling like such an outsider. Right? You say to your friend, I... I I feel ashamed because I've been messing up time after time after time after time. And that's what I'm, I'm really experiencing. I'm really suffering in my life, right? Is he your partner? If he is really your priest, he is your partner in everything. And there is nothing in the whole world that you will keep from him. Don't make him a spouse or don't make him an acquaintance. Don't just make him a friend. Tell him everything before he asks. He will represent your every request before 
you even know you need it. Tell him praise without prompting. Tell him you love it. Love him no matter what you're going through. He's your perfect partner in all of the pain and the problems. Let's pray for that. Lord, the experience of suffering is an awful thing, a traumatizing thing, and it's something that deeply makes us feel alone. But you're our partner in our problems and our pain, not, not just a friend, not just an acquaintance. You're our partner, and so we, we need to bring you these things, our praise, our love, our problems and our suffering, and, and not keep them to ourselves. Let us turn to you in all of these problems and, and put them before you so that, because we know that you suffered with us. There was no suffering that you would not do, go through so that we know we can trust you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.